so thankful to be back here and preaching with you uh, this week, opening God's Word. I want you to know that I don't know if you realize this, and I don't want you to feel sorry for me about this, but when I'm sitting in a service on Sunday morning and hearing the Word of the Lord, like the maybe eight times it happens all year, it is like, I don't know, like it's, it's hard to describe. Like I'm like, this is how they feel? You know, like, I mean, and it's not how you feel because you get tired of it, but I don't get it. And so when someone else is preaching, I'm like, man, oh, I'm just so full and I'm so excited. And, and it's, it is restoring for me and it's nourishing for me. So beyond the fact that, um, beyond the fact that it is a physical break, it's more than that. It's a spiritual nourishment, a spiritual uplifting for me. So I want you to, I want to thank you for being understanding, but more importantly, understanding what we're trying to do. Um, the reason I've had other guys preach since I've been here, the reason I give up 10 to more a year is because you don't train people to do well unless you give them opportunities to do it. And so we train people, we give, we, we've, I've sat down with Morgan in plenty of ca- uh, occasions, I sat down with Blake, I've called and talked to Stephen, you know, we train people, we give them uh, the knowledge, and then we give them the opportunity. Uh, I want it to be said about Vintage as much as anything else that we're sending out leaders from this church, uh, not just that we're developing leaders here, which I want to do too, but that we're sending out leaders from this church uh, into uh, the community, into other areas, and I don't want people to leave this church and that's my hope someday is that some of you will leave and be a part of church plants and, and other churches and different things like that, uh, leadership in other churches. And um, I don't want them to look back at us and be like, what were they teaching uh, at, at Vintage? So anyway, I'm thankful for the opportunity not only for me to be nurtured and to, to grow in the Lord, but also um, to nurture leadership in our, in our, in our fellowship. Um, I want to thank you for being a part of this series. Uh, some of you, not every sermon, maybe most of the sermons, you don't feel like they're pertinent to you, but um, I want to thank you for showing up and being here, um, especially if this is not a part of the stage of life that you're in. Um, typically throughout the year, like I have these expectations of what a sermon is going to be like. I can look ahead and plan ahead. We know for the whole year how each text is going to be broken out. And so I can understand if it's going to be a hard text or it's going to be an easy text or how well it's going to be received or whatever. But for the sermon series, it's not the same. It's, it's a little more difficult. We, we put a lot of time and a lot of thought into what we do in our sermon series because we know we only get a few of those sermons a year. Um, but it's a little bit harder to, to see how they'll be received because we have guests and everything's like that. But I I hope that you feel the same way I do in that um, there have been some powerful, convicting, um, God-honoring, thoughtful, um, hopeful messages that have been given um, to us on Sunday mornings. And if I've come away with anything, I've come away with more hope for the Christian family based on what these people have been preaching based on what we know about the Bible and what we know about God. I've come away with more hope for the Christian family. Uh, I have been convicted by this series uh, as I hope that you have 
too. I've been challenged to parent to the glory of Jesus, to redeem my time in these days under the sun. And as Ben said last week, look to the God that is above the sun for guidance, to lead my family in worship, to work to God's glory at every stage of life that I'm in. And we're going to continue to challenge you over the next few weeks and leading up to the marriage conference. But friends, I'm convinced now more than ever, and I don't like using the word revival. I think it's overused and overplayed. I don't, I don't want you to sit here and hear me say a million times, we need revival in the church. No, we need, we need to wake up, number one. We need to wake up, number one. And we need to just seek God every day. Because His mercies are new every morning and His wisdom and knowledge and understanding can come to us daily. We don't need revival in the church. We need people just to be committed to the things they've already said they were committed to. But I do say this with 100% um, confidence. We need a revival in our view of marriage. We need a revival in our understanding of marriage. And I'm convinced now more than ever that Um, it starts with God's people in the church, and it goes from that point out. Friends, the church itself is the strongest force for the world knowing Jesus. But I want to tell you, if you disagree with me on this, you're wrong. The marriage is the second. Marriage is the second. Here's, Here's where I'm getting this from. This is a side sermon. I wasn't even, I was just thinking about this as we were going today. So Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. And I think Ben might have mentioned this last week. I don't remember. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. The church, we all as a unit, are that threefold cord. But also, friends, marriage, the marriage um, union is that cord. And I want to tell you, if the enemy will look to attack in any way, if Satan will try to have a stronghold or a foothold in any way, he will start in the church and he will start in marriages. This is why now more than ever, if you're a single person in here, not only do you need to be praying for your marriage, but you need to be praying for the marriage of your friends and family in your church. You need to be praying for your friends and family if you're a single person here because I will tell you as a person who was formerly single and as a person who is married now, you will need the prayers of your brothers and sisters in Christ in order to thrive in marriage. Marriage is hard, at times awful, awful. At times it's the most rewarding thing in the world. But it is difficult if you feel like you're on an island. It is difficult if you feel like you're lonely. And so what you can do is sort of in a preemptive way, you can reciprocate the love to your brothers and sisters by praying. Church, we need to be praying for our, our people in our, in our church. We need to be praying not just for individuals, but we need to be praying for marriages. We need to be praying that God strengthens marriages. 
Because I will tell you, church, the Bible says that the love that we show to each other as a church will be proof to the world that Jesus is real and that he is alive and that he is risen from the dead. But the same is true in Christian marriage. The same is true in Christian marriage. The same way we interact, the way we love, the way we treat each other will be proof to our friends and our family and the world. It will be confidence to believers and proof to the world that Jesus has, in fact, risen from the dead, that he is alive and well, he is living in people, he is changing them, he is renewing them, and he is making them more into his image. Friends, if people who claim Jesus don't act like Jesus, eventually the world is going to say, there must be no Jesus. It's as simple as that. And it goes, it rings true in every relationship we have. But friends, if we as Christians are commanded to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength as the number one command, and love our neighbor as ourself as the second command, who then is our closest neighbor? Who is our closest neighbor? Is it not the person that you go to bed with at night? Is it not the person that you wake up to in the morning? Friends, you can't fulfill the, great, the second great command, therefore fulfilling the first great command, if you don't fulfill it in your household first. There is so much at stake in our marriages. There is so much at stake in our marriages. And I would tell you, Before I start this sermon, well, we've started. But anyway, in the midst of me starting this sermon today, there is so much at stake. There is too much at stake for us to be apathetic about our marriage. We need to put down our distractions and focus on our present and our future. There is too much at stake to let other things be more important or to take any precedence. And if we're single, unless we plan on being single forever, which is fine if that's what the Lord calls you to, we need to act like someone who is someday going to get married and be preparing for that. There is too much at stake to take such a flippant approach to marriage. The habits we are developing, no matter what stage we are in life, matter. Because I will tell you, single person... Young person, you don't automatically get the the characteristics to be a good husband and wife when you slide the ring on on your wedding day. It doesn't come into you like the Lord of the Rings, like this magic power that makes you just, oh, this is what it means to be a husband. This is what it means to be a wife. No, that happens by developing godly characteristics throughout your life and choosing to humbly implement those in your marriage. They don't magically appear. So today as we look at marriage, we have to understand the importance of that threefold cord. If a man's attacked, if a man attacks another man, he can easily overcome the one. But the two will withstand. Friends, we've got too many people We've got too many people letting our spouses take the attacks of the world alone. Too many people, when our spouse needs a teammate, 
letting them take the attacks of the world alone. And then we ask, why are they not living godly lives? Why are they not living like they know they should? I'm not saying it would be perfect, but it would be a lot easier with a friend and a helper. Our passage today needs a little context. I'm going to spend a little bit of time being negative, and I don't want to spend most of the time being negative, which I know you're going to say, well, that doesn't sound like you, Bryce, because, you know, I'm sure a lot of you think that I focus a lot of things on negative. I hope that that's not true, but um, our, our passage does need a little context because we're going to talk about a marriage that lasts, but to give our passage context, we're going to talk about what the Bible says about divorce, the Pharisees were here testing Jesus in, in the, verse that, the verses that Andy just read. I don't believe that this one group of verses from Mark is the only one we should look at as we take our stance on divorce. As a matter of fact, we consider that Jesus more, more than likely was answering the Pharisees who, who were governing at that time, who were sort of enforcing the religious laws and they had gone on for years and years making divorce easy and common and even over trivial things. In the Mishnah and other Jewish laws, uh, people were allowed to get divorced if the man lost his loving feeling for his wife or if he, if he found someone else more fair. Basically, he was able to trade her in for a new model, which we don't see that in the scriptures. But even worse in the Mishnah, we can see that a man was allowed to divorce his wife if she spoiled a meal. This is written down. This is written extra, extra Torah, extra biblical Jewish law. Jesus was answering specifically this test from the, from the Pharisees. Whereas they made marriage something that you could jump out of and into the next one. They had abandoned the seriousness and the foundational elements of marriage. Jesus was saying, you get divorced for anything. But I tell you, divorce in the eyes of God is not an acceptable, acceptable option. He's answering that question. But we do know that there is more recorded on divorce. This is not the only section on divorce. And I want to look at those things today. I want to give you two main ideas and then there's like 4,000 subpoints under it. So just get ready. The first idea is this, and you need to hear this. This is vastly important. Marriage was created to be a lifelong monogamous relationship between one man and one woman. Marriage was created to be a lifelong monogamous relationship between one man and one woman. There is no doubt about it, and without exception, that all divorce, all divorce goes against the created order. It goes against the beauty of creation for God's first couple and God's institution of marriage. Malachi 2.14 says, The Lord is witness of this covenant between you and your wife by covenant. The covenant is a representation of the covenant between God and His people. And also what we subsequently see was God's plan to be a representation between Christ and His church. And although sin 
and sin nature has damaged this covenant, we should seek to keep this created, this created order covenant strong. God hates divorce, Malachi 2.16 says. The God of Israel and Him who covers His garment with wrong. These are the things that God hates. The truth, friends, about divorce is this. There is no divorce, no breaking of this covenant between God and man and before God and man that does not break the heart of God. That is the truth. And I'm sorry if this hurts to hear, and I hope that I will give you some comforting words later. But that is the truth. There is no divorce that doesn't break the heart of God. All divorce breaks his heart. And in a perfect world, there would be no divorce. There would need, need be no breaking of covenants. There would be no destroying of the promises of God. But the truth is, we don't live in a perfect world. And promises get broken. And covenants get destroyed. Marriages go unkept. And they end. I tell you, for so long... In the early part of my marriage, I had such a negative view of marriage. I I will just be honest with you. Every time something went really wrong in the early part of my marriage, I thought, well, you know what? 50% of people get divorced anyway. This could be where I'm headed. This could be where I'm headed. Why not? I wouldn't be any different than anybody else. I just thought, and and now, subsequently, for a long time, I thought, well, my marriage just must be an anomaly. If 50% of Christians are getting divorced, my marriage just must be an anomaly. When we think this way, when we see statistics like this, it might lead us to believe that we are one of the statistics. But friends, you need to hear this, and this is important. This might not seem important to you, but it was vastly important to me to understand. Because one thing I try not to do is I try not to quote or use, you know, hollow statistics or unfactual things. And the truth is, 50% of Christians do not get divorced. If you've ever heard that before, that's a lie. As a matter of fact, the truth is that most people in their first marriages do not get divorced. There was an extensive study done in the 70s, one that had never been done like it before by a lady, um, well, it could be a man, I got this from a book and I didn't research, by Shanti Feldhan. According to, excuse me, this was in in 2014, there was another study I was going to do in the 70s. According to one of the most recent census bureaus, you need to hear this, one of the most recent census bureau bureau surveys, 72% of people who had ever been married are still married. 72% of people who have ever been married are still married, but this is the caveat, to their first spouse. To their first spouse. And the remaining 28% were not all divorced. Because this total also includes widows from their first spouse who make up roughly 8%. So from the Census Bureau... Roughly 20 to 25% of all people who are in their first marriage are still married. 
The reason that the statistics are so skewed is that second marriages are thrown in there. And roughly, this is a more accurate statistic, roughly 60% of all second marriages end in divorce. But here's the key, here is a key factor. I'm looking at this statistic. I've been told all my life that 50% of all Christian marriages end in divorce. And what the Census Bureau survey says is not even 50% of non-Christian marriages end in divorce. And then you look at this. For those who attend church gathering regularly, the, the numbers are even lower. Roughly 25 to 50% lower than the average, depending on what study you're looking at. According to Wayne Grudem, one couple who he had worked with extensively, who had worked extensively with married couples in counseling and other ways, uh, surveyed thousands of people. And it was estimated that about one in every 1,500 people who pray together regularly get a divorce. Feldman also included, uh, Feldhan also included in this uh, study that roughly 80% of all of those in their first marriage would describe themselves as happy. Why is this important? I think for a few reasons. The first reason is this. Doesn't it make you feel better to know that roughly 60 to uh, uh, 80 to 85% of all Christian marriages, first marriages, are still going somewhat strong? Isn't it better to say that, you know what, only 15 to 20% of Christian marriages fail than to say 50% of Christian marriages fail? For me, because I'm a word guy, like words matter to me, to hear that makes me believe that, you know what, it's actually abnormal and that I should fight and that I should keep going and that I should keep trying and that I shouldn't think that, well, other people are doing it. It's really common. It wouldn't be unknown. I know someone who is. I know many people who are. And honestly, you know, you hear all of the negatives of divorce because there are a lot. And you think that that is like the rule. And what it seems is, is that the average American, it seems to be the exception more than it does the rule. It's sort of like the whole squeaky wheel gets the grease thing. The louder stories are the ones we remember. You know, it takes us a lot more thought to remember and think about the countless marriages we know that are thriving and that are, that are beautiful pictures and images of what marriage should be like. You know, what we think about, especially during the bad time, is, you know what? Bob left his wife, and last weekend, he was out uh, playing golf, and he was out and had no curfew, and he had no no responsibilities. And you know what? My wife is annoying me right now. And it would be so much easier to be like Bob. Truth is, friends, as you've heard it said before in a cliche way, as it comes to marriage, the grass is almost never greener on the other side. God wants people to work to keep their covenant, especially marriage covenants, to pursue marriage with a great veracity and a great resolve, to do our part to reverse the curse 
and the effects of the fall. Because friends, when we work to thrive in marriage, what we are saying is not today, Satan. We are saying, you will not have this power over me. You had the power at the fall, but I'm going to work in my marriage to reverse the curse. But again, we don't live in a perfect world, and there are exceptions. Marriages get skewed, they get abandoned. Men and women pursue lust, and they pursue comfort in another arm, another's arms. They abandon their spouse, they break their covenant to God and their spouse. So knowing that divorce always breaks the heart of God... Is there any exception where divorce is acceptable? I think there are. I think there are. And I think if you study the scriptures, you'll see it. So I want to go, what I want to do is I'm going to spend the next however long we need discussing two exceptions to divorce and then ways that I've come up with, not an exhaustive list, ways that I've come up with that we can really work to make our families thrive. Two exceptions to divorce. The first is this, the case for adultery. Turn to Matthew 19. The case of adultery, not the case for adultery. That changes the context of what my point is completely. Um, the case of adultery. Turn to uh, Matthew 19, verse 3. Matthew 19, verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for, to divorce one's wife for any cause? This is that Mishnah law that they were going with. Remember, it's the, she spoiled the mill, you know, that, time to jump ship. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become what? One flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and, and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. From the beginning it was not so. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. I don't want to spend so much time on the negative today. But I do want to discuss these exceptions for divorce. And adultery is an exception. This is an instance where often irreparable damage has been done to the marriage. And the Lord gave an exception for a person to be cleared to move on. In this instance, the, instance, the person who has been wronged is able to get a divorce and get married again without dishonoring the Lord and without sinning. The person who is the cheater is not the same. It's not the same. For him or her, it would be a sin to get married again. Now, there are two things that I want you to notice about this. Number one, it was almost always assumed that if you were writing a certificate of divorce, it was in order to set you free to remarry. Now, I've changed my view on this. My view on this was in the past that, well, the Bible says get remarried, but it never allots, I mean, the Bible says it's okay to get a divorce in these instances, but it never allots a stipulation to get remarried. Well, the, the reason I've changed my thought is because first, hit, first century context, almost uh, including in the Mishnah, almost exceptional, uh, um, almost for the, for the full extent of what 
um, we have that we can read and see. Um, if a divorce certificate was written, it meant that it was written in order that the other person may get remarried. Okay, so, so that's something you need to understand as we look at the context of all of this. Um, so in this instance, the, the divorce uh, would have been written and the person um, would have been able to remarry. But there's also something else that I want you to see. If you have been caught in adultery, have made the mistake, and you have been divorced, um, even for other reasons, even because of your own sin, you can be forgiven. You are not in, and this is another area that I've changed my view on, you are not in a state of perpetual adultery. And it is even legitimized here by the way that Jesus answers. He says, and what? What, is, what legitimizes it? And marries another. And marries another. Jesus is, for sure, pointing out the sin, adultery. <coughs> He's pointing out the problem, divorce. But he is legitimizing remarriage here. So even if it is a sin for one and not a sin for another to get remarried, and those people get remarried, the Lord is then legitimizing that marriage by saying, if he remarries. Now, like I said, divorce always breaks the heart of God. It always breaks the heart of God. And even at times, remarriage dishonors God. But it is something that we can overcome. It is something that we can move past. As a matter of fact, if you are divorced and remarried, you would honor God more by giving everything you have in this marriage than by focusing on your past. You would honor God more by giving all that you had in the marriage that you're in than by focusing on your path. Your past. I want to make something perfectly clear, though. Jesus here is not saying, adultery has happened, go write the certificate. What did he do before all of that? He said, look. He said, if you can't get past it, if you can't reconcile, if you can't draw back to each other, then... So it's kind of like this. If someone punches me in the face, I'm within my right, I feel, to punch them in the face. And I will say, self-defense. Let's say it's self-defense to help your little minds out. Because I might be a little more violent than all of you. If someone punches me in the face in an armed robbery, I don't know why they're punching me if they've got a gun, but if someone's punching me in the face, <laughs> I, boy, I really, really just, I'm nailing this illustration right now. If someone punches me in the face and in an act of self-defense, I punch them back, I'm within my right, right? I'm within my rights to punch them back. Does that make it right, though? Does that make it right? Now, what Jesus is saying here is if your spouse cheats on you, you are within your rights to leave them. But that doesn't necessarily make it right. You are within your rights to leave them, but it doesn't necessarily make it the right thing to do. So what should we do first? We should seek to honor God through reconciliation. And then if reconciliation cannot happen, 
we are within the right, that God, the God-given right, to pursue um, divorce and even remarriage. There's a second one. That is the only instance that Jesus gives for divorce. The only exception that Jesus gives for divorce. But there is a second one. Paul in 1 Corinthians gives another exception for divorce. And it's the case for, excuse me, again, I messed that up. The case of abandonment. The case of abandonment. Turn to 1 Corinthians 7. Turn to 1 Corinthians 7. The case of abandonment. The first we have, it's given by Jesus in the Gospels. And it's the case of of adultery. But there is a second one. It's the case of abandonment. Look at 1 Corinthians 7 verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, she, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. I want to stop there. That doesn't mean those people are saved. doesn't mean those people are saved. But it does increase the p- probability. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. That means enslaved to their first covenant of marriage. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife. Obviously, again, the best route before we look at this exception is to stay together, to trust the Lord, and pray to God that they go down a different, our spouse goes down a different course. But this is a different time in history, and I don't mean like Rules change because of time. I mean that Jesus had just come into the world. And a lot of Jewish people were getting saved. And a lot of Jewish husbands and wives were not getting saved. And up until the point that Jesus came into the world, guess what? Jews were forbidden to marry outside of their, uh, of their race, their ethnicity, their religion. Because all of it was tied to their religion. Not because of racism, you know. Because everything was tied to their religion. And so they were forbidden to marry outside of their religion. And so what was happening is uh, Jewish women were getting saved and their Jewish husbands were not. And Jewish husbands were getting saved and their Jewish wives were not. And then Jewish people were marrying Christians. And Christian people were marrying Jews. And because of the... And that, I mean, there's more than... It's more complicated than that. But that's the scenario we're in. And Paul says, look, if you're married to an unbeliever, your goal should be to stay and keep your covenant as unto the Lord. For how do, how do you know that by your example your husband might, is going to be saved or not? How do you know that by your example your wife is going to be saved or not? But if there is an exception where this unbelieving husband or this unbelieving wife abandons and leaves this spouse, the Lord frees that person from their original covenant and freely allows them to go and remarry. 
But again, Paul, did, Paul made the obvious point, and that is that we should reconcile the greatest covenant that we have in our lives next to salvation. We should work to reconcile the greatest covenant that we have in our life next to salvation. And the reason for that is this, and this is the little second sub-point under heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong commitment. There are never casualty-free divorces. There are never casualty-free divorces. You must understand that the strain of divorce hurts all people involved, and at a minimum, you must be willing to recognize that and help yourself cope and your children cope. And on another level, you need to count the cost of chasing the greener grass. There was a study done in the 70s, and nothing was done to this level, to this point, and it still rings true today. There were 60 families interviewed, 120 parents, and 131 children, a divorce. They interviewed them at one year, five year, and ten years, uh, five years and ten years after divorce. And here are some of the interesting things they found. There was much more, but here's... Some of the interesting things they found. At 10 years, both men and women said that the stress of being single never lessens. Half of the women and one-third of the men were still angry with their spouses 10 years later. Only one in seven of the former couples expressed a stable second marriage. Their children suffered intense stress, anger, rejection, loneliness, despair from having to take sides, isolation from having to take sides, and feelings of disloyalty. Sometimes 10 to 15 years later, there was an immense longing and yearning by the children for parents to reunite. Still, even though there was no hope of that marriage being Reunited. Nearly one-third of the children between the ages of 19 to 29 had little to zero ambition 10 years after their parents were divorced. They were drifting through life with no set of goals, limited educations, and a sense of helplessness. Girls lost femininity and trust. Boys lost masculinity, and they were fearful, on average, more than their counterparts. All this to say this, no one wins in divorce. Divorce is always, always has casualties. So we must make sure that we understand what we're doing and that the grass, even though it may appear at times greener for Bob on the other side, it may be be cool to play bachelor or bachelorette for a time, uh, it is not greener on the other side. And there will always be casualties. I want to say one more thing, and I'm going to move on. And for the most part, you've probably agreed with me to this point, but this one's going to be tough to take, and you have to hear me. And if you want to talk about this later, there's not enough time to talk about it right now, but I'll be more than willing to sit down with you later because this, this is, this might, you might hate me after this. Abuse, whether verbal or physical or even emotional abandonment, are not biblical reasons for divorce. Okay, no tomatoes. Abuse, verbal or physical, or emotional abandonment are not biblical reasons for divorce. You can disagree with me. It's fine. I do want you to know this. As that, if, you, if you heard that and you're about to check out, don't. Just, just really quickly, listen to this. If you are physically or have been physically or have been sexually abused, come to me. Let's go to the police. Because guess what? That's a crime. 
That person should be arrested. That person should pay the penalty for their crime. But still, it is not a biblical reason for divorce. Let's get you to a safe place. Let's move you out of the house. Let's pray and hope for the best. Still, not a reason for divorce and remarriage. Let's get your spouse help. If you've been emotionally abused, let's get your spouse counseling. Let's find a place for you to stay until this stuff changes. Let's pray that God changes that person and works in your marriage. Still, not a reason for divorce, according to the Bible. And if the spouse doesn't, if the spouse doesn't repent, we can assume that they are not a believer. And at that point, we can start looking at the non-believer abandoning the relationship. But many times, emotional abandonment is a get-out-of-marriage-free card. And I will tell you, it just doesn't fly with the Lord. Because this is true, and I'll dodge for tomatoes again. Any divorce that doesn't meet the standards that God applies is still considered adultery in the eyes of God. And the marriage is still valid in the eyes of God. You can recover You can be forgiven. Your next marriage will not always be illegitimate. But these are the things we must consider as we think about our own marriage, as we think about remarriage, as we think about divorce. So now that I've gotten all that negative stuff out of my system, I'm going to throw some positive points to you really quickly. And it's 1140, by the way, so maybe we'll see how quickly I can do it. You guys think you have it bad. There are, there's like six people in the foundation class that have to hear me speak for another two hours. So um, you're welcome for all of that. Roughly two hours. Um, the second major point is this. Godly marriage, this type of marriage, takes work. It takes work. <laughs> I, I am... I know that I was this way a little bit, and I'm convinced that there are still people this way. Like, relationships pre-marriage are hard, and there are some dummies that think it gets easier after the wet. It's the same thing. You don't get marriage knowledge. Like, marriage doesn't automatically become fluffy unicorn cloud playland when, when you put the ring on. Marriage is hard. It is difficult. It takes work. And it starts before marriage. That's my first little subpointer. It starts before marriage. Single guys, single girls, you need to be selective. But not focusing mostly on looks or not focusing mostly on little annoyances or little things that you, you can't get past. Not even focusing necessarily on exactly where that person is with their walk with God. But focusing more on the veracity of their pursuit and their worldview, their willingness to get to a different place than they are. I will tell you, um, and Anna would be the second to admit this after I admit it right now, um, Anna and I were at different places when we met. Like, y'all would have looked at Anna, uh, Anna was a a Christian woman pursuing the Lord. She had been for a little while before I met her. But y'all would have looked at her and you would have said, "Um, there's no way that she can be a pastor's wife. There's no way. This is just not where she is. And honestly, like, I've tried to make that as easy on my wife as possible. I don't want her to be like the typical pastor's wife. And like, in her own way, like, 
She's pretty great at it. Um, but we weren't quite there. But you know what I saw in Anna? I saw someone who was pursuing the Lord, who had a worldview similar to mine, and a desire to walk with me in the things I wanted to walk with. So don't focus so much on the where that person isn't, but where they're trying to be. Don't focus on so much all of the differences, but if the differences are insurmountable. Be selective right now. But also, can I tell you, friends, the best thing that you can do as a single person is be chaste. Be chaste. Because here's the deal. When you add other elements into relationships, what you are doing is you are creating emotional, listen, lifelong connections. Lifelong connections. I still... There are still weird feelings that go on in my heart when I think about past relationships. Not like, I want that or I need that, but like, those were good days. You know, stuff like that. There are still emotional connections that I, I would attribute to sin in my life in the past. Like, I should be able to look back at those and say, those were good days for different reasons. Those were good days because they were times of innocence and they were, you know, easy. But I will tell you, friends, you create emotional, lifelong connections that it could take years in your marriage to work through, depending on your communication and your ability to conflict, resolve conflict. You don't need to date Billy Graham or you don't need to date a, a woman like your pastor's wife. You need to date someone who is headed in the same trajectory as you with the same goals in mind and is pursuing the Lord like you. It starts before marriage. Marriage is about commitment. Friends, never has there ever been a divorce. You need to hear me. The statistics have proven it. Mine. Never has there ever been a divorce where both people were giving every bit of effort they had. They were both pursuing the Lord. And they just couldn't do it. In the history of the world, there's never been a divorce like that. At some point in divorce... Someone gave up. Someone stopped pursuing the Lord. Someone stopped giving effort. Typically both people. <clears throat> I am confident that not one marriage has failed when both of those qualifications have been met. People fall in and out of love. They fall in and out of like. Heck, you can ask my wife on a regular basis and she might tell you that she doesn't like me right now. But we, we, we have the luxury, friends, to fall in and out of love. That can happen. We have the luxury to fall in and out of like. But because of our love for the Lord, we don't have the luxury of falling in and out of our commitment. The commitment you made between God and man is something that will last. That should last. It is a once and for all commitment. Friends, I want to tell you, and I'm convicted by this, and I hope you are. Never let someone else fulfill your marriage vows. Never let someone else fulfill your marriage vows. Fight for your marriage. I can tell you, brothers, men in this room, you're a fool if you think you're ever going to fulfill my marriage vows. There's other men in this world, they're foolish if they think they'll ever fulfill my marriage vows to my wife. Not going to happen. Not only because I love the Lord, but I'm just too dang prideful to let that happen. 
No one's fulfilling my marriage vows to my wife but me. Marriage is about commitment. It's about friendship. Marriage is about friendship. Anna and I have spent a lot of our marriage doing marriage wrong. We've made each other so mad that we wanted to fight and leave, and sometimes we have left, albeit temporarily. But one of the things that keeps us fighting is the reminder, guys, it's this simple, that we're friends. We're friends. I love you guys and I value your friendship, but I would give you up every stinking day of the week to keep my wife. Every day of the week. You don't want to see that person again? That's fine. I'm not seeing you ever again if it means keeping my wife. My wife is my friend. She is someone I value. She is someone I need. Friends, we need to fight and nurture our friendships. Make sure that we bring our friends and, uh, excuse me, make sure we are being friends and friendly to each other. We need to converse. We need to hang out. We need to laugh at people together, not too harshly. We need to have inside jokes. We need to have codes. Just don't let other people crack them. And we need and 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 we need to we need to not give our looks to other people. We need to confer with our friend. We need to have a partnership like no other with our spouse because they are our friends. Guys, don't be a bigger friend to anyone else but your spouse. Don't let anyone else be a better friend to your spouse than you. Again, I love the Lord, but I'm too prideful to let that happen. Stronger friendships outside of the marriage, you can say they're not sinful and they're fine, but I will tell you they will drive a wedge. They could end up leading to adultery or it could end up leading to resentment. It could end up leading to just existing together. Your spouse should never have a bigger friend. I want to tell you there have, time, there have been times where my wife has not been around me for significant periods of time. And I have looked around for someone to tell something great to. I've looked around for someone to talk to or someone to make fun of someone else with. I know it's bad. We just do it. I'm telling you. It's the truth. Whether I'm sinful or not in it, we do it. Uh, and it's not typically you, and it's typically harmless. Um, um, sometimes it's you, and sometimes it's not so harmless. But, um, um, but, but I'm looking around. I'm looking around for my wife and the disappointment that's there when my friend is not there. You know, it means something to tell something to my dad or my mom or my sister or to you. But it doesn't mean the same as it does to tell something to be in friendship with my wife. Hey, we're to be friends. You know what else we're to be? Marriage is about fun. Marriage is to be fun. Have fun with each, with each other. Go on dates. Take walks with each other. Do weird things. Do interesting things with each other. Make the bedroom fun again. Dress up. Those two things don't have to be exclusive. Save money so you can spend it on yourself and as a couple. Borrow a nice car for dates. Turn Netflix off. Put your phone down. Turn the games off. And be interesting again. Be interesting again. Be somebody that your wife wants to ask questions to. Be 
Oh, if you're a wife, be someone that your husband wants to ask questions about. Be interesting again. You know why you don't have anything? You know why you never run out of things to talk about in dates? It's because you're interested in the person you're talking to. We have gone so long in our marriages and we stop. We, we become boring and uninteresting. And we make our, we, we hold our spouse hostage and say, well, I will talk about the things I'm interested in. And our spouse says, I will talk about the things I'm interested in. When we were dating, we say, you know what? I'm going to be interesting for this person. And you know what? The things that I'm interested in, they might be interested in, but I'm going to be interested in the things they're interested in. I'm going to be interesting again. Be fun. Goodness sakes. We are so boring. I can't imagine. I, I can imagine why in my household and your household, Netflix is on all the time and the phones are at our face. For the love of God, people, can you give your spouse something to look at other than the back of their head or their forehead? Or the side of their head if you're laying in bed watching Netflix, which is our thing. Let your spouse talk to your eyes again. Woo them. Marriage is the only relationship that you have in your life where you can let everything in the world go and you can still be considered halfway decent. You let everything you go to your job and you're fired. You let everything you go to your church and someone notices it. You let everything go in your friend and you're looking for new friends. But for some reason, we can get out of shape. We can get unhealthy. We can not talk. We can, we can just go on living separate lives. And we can think, we're just going to be fine in the end. It is foolishness. Give your spouse something to talk to other than your forehead or the back of your head, or the side of your head. Give them something to talk about other than your favorite Netflix show or the current hobby that you're interested in. Hey, other than your children. Other than your kids. Be interesting again because guess what? Interesting is fun. And fun makes for a good marriage. Marriage is about communication. One of the biggest problems in marriage is communication or the lack thereof. It's unresolved conflict. It's hidden feelings. Also, for, for my marriage, I will tell you, my wife has wanted to punch me in the face and I've wanted to hurt her in the same way. Our marriage is lack of communication and details. Like we talk about other things, we don't talk about the details of life. We are flying by the seat of our pants. I'm telling you, you know it about me, but you might not know it about her. We're flying by the seat of our pants nine times out of ten. If you see me plan an event and I've worked really hard, you better give me a pat on the back because you know I'm doing something that's completely out of my nature. So for the marriage conference, I've been helping out a lot on that, and I've been doing some things. So give me, you know, later, just give me a pat on the back. But, uh, but, but we, 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 we don't talk about little things, and we don't talk about the big things and we let it go now communication has only gotten worse in the technological age and Morgan and Cody are going to get mad at me for blaming technology on everything but that's not what I'm doing because what happens is in times of silence whereas you used to have to approach those silence with conversations you can just duck your head into your phone and not have to talk about it friends your phone has become your alcohol your phone has become your methamphetamine your phone has become your drug 
Because it allows, oh, Bruce, now, now hear me, now, the old generation thinks this is, this is the case. Y'all got y'all's problems too, brother. Don't, don't get me wrong, okay? The older generation thinks the phones are our problems, but they're the, the problem of every generation. We got other ways of coping in the older generations too. I know you hear it, now, amen, I appreciate the amen, but give it a little bit more than just when I'm talking about phones, okay? Uh, I'm just kidding. But, but so, so here's the deal. We, folks, we, we bury ourselves in things to numb our senses so that we don't have to deal with our problems. And then we wonder why we have so many problems. Man, it's easy to go right to your phone. It's easy to add some drug to your life. But you don't solve any problems. Technology is not the reason for everything being wrong in the world. Just with millennials. Just kidding. Um, (laughs) Technology, though, is a... The abuse of technology is a precursor to people not knowing how to talk with each other anymore. We, we can communicate beautifully with technology. If I went to Africa today, I could still talk to you tomorrow. You could see my face. It's awesome. But also, it's a way we shut people out. Marriage is about conflict resolution. Point of communication is often conflict resolution. Friends, hiding your true feelings or your wants or needs is not keeping the peace. You know what it's doing? It's building an armament for nuclear war. Hiding your feelings, not discussing it in a godly, God-honoring, humble way is not resolving conflict. It's building an armament for nuclear war. So I say this. I say embrace the elephant in the room, no matter how awkward it is. But do it in a loving way. Ask serious questions that can resolve conflict. Are there days, weeks, maybe months or years of hidden emotions with you? Can I ask you this? Are the days, weeks, months, or years of hidden emotion worth the seconds and hours and days and maybe weeks of conflict resolution? Because you started out trying to keep the peace, right? You started out trying to keep the peace. And now you're dealing with months of agony. Whereas my thought is, if you handle it in the beginning, it's minutes to days to weeks of agony. And then beauty. It's not too late to right that ship. It's not too late to turn it around. We keep the peace not by avoiding conflict. We keep the peace by sweeping out under the rug. Marriage is about effort. I mean this when I say this. As someone who works hard at most everything I do, there should be more consistent effort put in to marriage. There should be more effort put into marriage than any other thing we do on this earth save only our Christianity. And then if we're putting effort into our Christianity, we are putting effort into our marriage. We should pursue marriage better than promotion, better than outside relationships, better than anything other than Christ. But often, when we're pursuing Christ, we're pursuing our marriage. The last thing is this, and it's vastly important. Marriage is about trust. Marriage is about trust. Husbands, your wife needs to be able to trust you. The reason she married you is because in her mind she said, 
I trust him. I feel secure with him. I can give my life to him. On some level, husbands, the reason you married your wife is because you said, I trust her. I can live with her. I can, I can give my life for her and to her. Along the way, often we lose that trust for different reasons. But that trust doesn't have to be gone. Because the thing that we know is that God is a God of sanctification. God is a God of redemption. And in redemption and in sanctification, we can almost regain anything. We can almost regain anything. Anything can be restored. Anything can be renewed. But even if you're sitting here right now having a difficult time trusting your spouse, there is a trust, there is a trust that is better than even your spouse, and that's trusting in the Lord. Trust that the Lord has given you that spouse. Trust that the Lord has a plan for your life if you live for him, if you're a believer. And trust that he's working out that plan. And follow him as he is. Friends, I'm going to tell you, my view over the last couple of years of marriage has changed drastically. And it's changed the way I view fights and arguments, the way I view my wife. It's tough to see our Christian friends go through divorce and go through things like that. But I will tell you that for people who are following the Lord, that are pursuing the Lord, that is the exception more than it is the rule. We should always seek reconciliation. We should always seek to love our closest neighbor as ourself as best as we can as we're trying to pursue the Lord. Pray with me today. God, you're good. You're holy. And in your goodness and your holiness, you offer those things to us. We are found good because of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. We are found holy because of the work of the Holy Spirit that lives within us, who is our helper and our guide. We don't have to settle for second best in our marriages. We don't have to settle for um, divorce. We don't have to settle for just being roommates. We don't have to settle for, for a lack of passion and a lack of desire in our marriage. We can pursue you like never before. We can be uh, honoring to you in our marriage, and we can keep our marriage covenant. Help us to keep our marriage covenant as, we ke- as you keep your covenant to your church. We love you. We praise you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.